You know, what I thought I'd do this morning, at least to start off, was to give you a little window into my troubled psyche. (laughs) I woke up out of a dream yesterday morning that uh, just really was one of those dreams that struck me. And it kind of kicked off a whole thought process that I wasn't really thinking about until then, and it kind of took this message in a different direction. But I think it, it follows on from what we've been doing for the last two weeks. But uh, how many of you remember your dreams? Most of you remember your dreams? You know, a lot of people don't remember dreams. They think they don't dream, which is not true. We all dream. But this dream I came out of, and it was just so vivid. And it'll just give you a little bit of what a pastoral nightmare looks like, I think. So I'm dreaming that I'm getting ready to come here this morning. I know it's Sunday morning. I'm getting ready to go. I'm doing all my usual stuff. Everything seems fine. I go out to my home office to get my notes for the... uh, for the message and get my guitar and get ready to go. And I realized there's no notes. And then I realized I forgot to prep for the message. I got nothing to say. It's time to go. What am I going to do? And my mind starts racing and the panic sets in, you know, and I'm thinking through, okay, can I do this? I do this, I do this. What can I possibly do? The voice of a friend of mine from 15 years ago pops into my head. And he's kind of a charismatic character, old crusty guy. And he said, you know what? You give a message, all you need is the first line. Just the first line. Holy Spirit will take care of the rest. So I'm thinking, okay, that sounds pretty good right now. Of course, it didn't work too well for him. The only time he ever got the pulpit on a Sunday morning, he started with his first line, went about 10 minutes, ran out of things to say and walked off. (laughs) Poor senior pastor had to come in and fill for at least 15 minutes to give it something. But anyway, that sounded good at the time. Okay, that's what I'll do. So I grab my guitar. I'm going down to the car. Car won't start. Okay, panic sets in again. Now what do I do? Now, in the kind of logic that only makes sense in a dream, I'm thinking, I can ride a bike. Okay, I'll ride a bike. I can still I can still make it in time. And now I'm picturing everybody, you know, running around, getting things ready without me, wondering where the heck I am. I'm missing uh, rehearsal and all the other things. But I'm not picturing this room. I'm picturing some other room, big square room with a platform stage. And somehow I know that it's up north in North County, up on the five freeway north. You know, it felt like Fountain Valley or something, you know. So I'm Okay, so I get on my bike, and all of a sudden I'm riding, and I'm riding on the freeway. And now suddenly it's nighttime, and it's not raining, but the streets are wet. And I remember just watching my front tire, trying to keep it inside the line of the shoulder, and the whole thing is just lit by the headlights of passing traffic, and I've got the death grip on on the handlebars because I'm on the freeway. But that doesn't seem weird to me. I'm riding on the freeway. Then all of a sudden I realize I can't remember what street I'm supposed to exit on. Right? I'm thinking, okay, but I'll know it when I see it, when it comes up. So I'm watching the lines, I'm watching the pavement, I'm watching the, the street signs go by. All of a sudden I realize nothing is familiar. I don't know where I am. And you know what that feeling you get when you know somewhere in the back of your subconscious, you know you've missed your exit? And then all of a sudden it becomes clear you've missed your exit? So I realize I missed my exit. I don't know where I am. So I pull off. And as soon as I pull off, I'm suddenly in this urban area. I'm thinking it feels kind of like Long Beach, but I'm not sure. I'm in Long Beach now. And it's daytime again. And there's people walking all over the place. And I realize I've got to get back on the freeway and go back south and pick up where I left. And now I can't find the freeway. And I can see it down there. I'm like on an overpass. I see the freeway, but I can't figure out how to get there. And, I'm, and then mercifully, I woke up. You know, 
Do dreams mean anything? Does that dream mean anything? Do any dreams mean anything? So I got a yes over here. And we're all going to have different opinions. Do you know researchers don't really know? They are split all over the place as to whether dreams mean anything and whether they are just, it's just the meaning that we give them. But I'll tell you what, if you know anything about the last five, six months here at The Effect, that dream completely described all of the emotional hot buttons that I've been going through. Everything trying to do, everything being you know, turned aside, frustrated, not working. And it's amazing how I think what dreams do, at least, is tap down into the subconscious, that emotional material down there, and allow it to bubble up in a way, in a symbolic way, that we can use or not use. Do dreams have any intrinsic meaning? I don't know. I don't have enough experience on that to say. But I know that they describe to me what I'm really going through, even if my head is saying otherwise. My head can be saying, yeah, I'm doing fine. Yeah, I got this. I'm under control. But underneath, you know, I'm on a bike on the freeway in the rain, you know, and, and feeling all of that tension, feeling all of that frustration, feeling that, that panic of knowing things are not in control. And what dreams can actually do, though, is give you a window on all that to remind you, yeah, things aren't under control. It's okay that they're not under control. There is still a way through, even if the outcome is not what we would expect. But sometimes we get so caught up in our day-to-day lives, we forget that. We think that the emotions we feel are real, even though often they're triggered by some other source. And so, it's up to you to decide what you want to do with your dreams. You know, like I said, some people say they don't dream. You know, because they don't remember any dreams. The truth is we all dream about an hour and a half to, to two hours a night, and all through the night. Researchers have found us not just during REM, rapid eye movement time, but we're dreaming in all stages of sleep. But we only remember the dreams we wake up in. And so if you think you haven't dreamt because you don't remember any dreams, it's because you were not awakened by your dreams the way I was in Long Beach. And, um, and so you don't remember them. You know, it's always fascinating. How do they know? How do you know this kind of thing? And it's these scientists, these researchers with the white lab coats and the clipboards, you know, putting those funny caps on people's heads with all the you know, electrodes on it and sticking them in EEG and MRI machines while they sleep and then doing the same thing while they're awake. And they found out when people are learning, when people are actively taking new information in and creating new memories, you know, the brain is talking to itself. And so this one part of the brain called the hippocampus fires and sends information to the neocortex and it fires in return and they watch those synced up firings and then in sleep it's not happening. So they realize, oh, okay, in sleep you're not making any new memories. You're not writing anything to the hard disk, in other words. So you wake up out of a dream like that and it's still there, just barely in RAM memory, right? But if you don't actually make an effort to encode it, you know, you forget your dreams in about five minutes, right? It's just fascinating to me how the brain works, how all this stuff happens. And then that's just the scientific part. If we go into the spiritual part, are dreams predictive? Do dreams give you any new information that you didn't have before? I don't know the answer to those questions. I haven't experienced that but I have experienced a use for dreams in terms of this subconscious information coming out and, and, and helping us to understand you know, this conduit to the subconscious, this root emotional material bubbling up. 
deep guarded feelings sometimes that we think we have under control with our minds playing themselves out. Maybe not new information, but giving us new insights about ourselves that we can really use. Pointing to triggers, pointing to fears, pointing to compulsions, pointing to habitual patterns of action that we may not be aware of. A kind of a correlate, a recurring dream that I have. I'm in a car at the intersection and it's fast cross traffic and the car is slowly sliding out into the intersection and I'm standing on the brake and I'm pulling the emergency brake and I got my death grip on the, and doesn't anything I do, the car is still slowly sliding out into the intersection. Sometimes I'm trying to fly in my dream and I can't get more than two inches off the ground trying to go, you know, similar things. And I realize it's when the work is overwhelming, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when it feels like no matter how hard I try, the behinder I get, those things being played out. They're signals to me to relax now. Realize this is not all under your control. You can't do this all on your own. And so these things are really starting to help as I get a handle on this. If any of you have kept dream journals, that can help you to keep track of some of this material as it comes up. Maybe it's useful, maybe it's not. But it helps us continually be more aware of what's really going on. And so the researchers debate and they disagree and they have all these things going on. We're going to let them argue. Because what they don't disagree on, the one thing that everyone seems to understand is that the dream state to the dreamer is just as real as the landscape is to the waker. Do you understand what I mean by that? When you're inside the dream, it is completely real. You're completely there. It's funny, this dream woke me up about five in the morning and I went back to sleep and then I spun right into another dream where I was at the church that I was ordained at and it was a Sunday morning, and yet I was remembering the dream that I had previously. It was this weird juxtaposition of all these events. And Dr. Erico was there. Remember Rocco Erico who spoke a few weeks ago? He was there, and he came up to me and asked me if I would pray with him. And so he sat on a chair, and I sat right in front of him. And he reached out with his right hand and grabbed mine, like, above the elbow, and pulled me in. And so I grabbed his arm above the elbow. And so our heads were right next to each other. And so I was literally praying into his ear. I can still feel that embrace right now. It was so real. I can feel the warmth of his face right next to mine as we were talking, as we were praying. It was so real. I had no idea. The brain doesn't know whether these electrical impulses are coming from the outside world through our senses or just from another part of the brain. It's just as real. And I was experiencing just that reality, just that connection And then after we parted, he went and he was having a conversation with somebody else, and I heard him say, oh yeah, miracle. Miracle in Aramaic is milu, milu, with his his kind of sing-song voice he has, milu. And I woke up hearing milu, I'm thinking, now wouldn't that be cool if miracle is milu, and I got that information from a dream? Now we're talking, yeah, wouldn't that be great? See, I've never had the opportunity or the reason to look up miracle because that word actually doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere. There's signs and wonders and other things that point to miracles, but that word wasn't there. And so I went, when I got up, I ran to my lexicons and looked it up. And alas, it's not Milu. <laughs> it's Ness, in case anybody cares. Both in Hebrew and Aramaic, it's the same word, you know. But I was hoping just for a second, wouldn't that be cool? I actually got downloaded something. So I still don't know if that works. But on the other hand, you know, this idea of dreams being so real, 
that we don't know that we're dreaming. This is why nightmares, especially occurring one, recurring ones, you know, the, the monster is chasing you and you're running. You keep running and running because you think that monster is real. You think if that monster catches you that something bad is going to happen. You don't know that you're dreaming. If for one moment you realize you were dreaming, you could stop and turn, face the monster, and everything fades to white because there's nothing in a dream that can hurt you. But we don't know that. And so we experience all the emotions as if. Now, there's one exception to this, and it's called a lucid dream. And I don't know if I've spoken about this to this group. Does anyone know what a lucid dream is? Okay. So a lucid dream is a dream that you wake up in enough to realize that you're dreaming, but not enough to exit the dream. So you stay asleep, but you wake up, you become alert, you become aware inside the dream, and you know you're dreaming. Now, once you realize that you're dreaming, you can control the dream. You can do anything you want. You can jump like Michael Jordan. You can fly. You can make choices. You can choose to see this person. You can choose to go. It's really an amazing experience. How do I know all this stuff? Because I spent time learning how to lucid dream back about 30-some years ago, you know, when I was into all these crazy things. How do you learn how to lucid dream? How can you train yourself to wake up inside your dream? Well, what you have to do is constantly question the state of your consciousness constantly during the waking day. You get into the habit of questioning your consciousness so that when you fall asleep, you will do the same thing. It becomes a habitual thing that you do. So right now I'd be sitting here talking to you all and I'd be questioning, am I awake or am I dreaming? And I'd be looking for cues and clues, inconsistencies, different colors. Maybe we're having this conversation, but we're in the house I grew up in, right? Or maybe we're on the freeway in the night, in the rain, but at any rate, those kind of juxtapositions, colors that aren't right, detail that's wrong, perspective that's off. And then as soon as you suspect that you're dreaming, you can do one of several things. One of the things is simply just look at your hands. If you look at your hands in a dream, it kicks you into a higher state of awareness. Kind of strange. You can try to read something. I don't know if you realize it, but you can't read in a dream. The letters will not resolve. They'll just keep moving and changing. Even billboards, you can't read in a dream. You don't know that while you're dreaming, but if you're awake inside the dream, you can realize that. And then once you suspect that you're dreaming, try something impossible. Try jumping like Michael Jordan. You know, In one dream, I just jumped off a balcony. Don't really recommend that, but it worked. And I fell until I was about a foot off the ground, just stopped, hovered, and then I flew off and It's amazing what we can do once we are aware that the situation is the dreamscape and we can choose. Why am I telling you all this stuff? All right. Because there is an amazing analogy to lucid dreaming and the dreamscape and what we go through in the waking state. See, the truth is, most of us are sleepwalking through life. Most of us are going through our moments and not being present enough to be able to realize that the triggers, the emotions, the compulsions, all these things that we face that create the dysfunction, that create the suffering, aren't real. Just as there's nothing in the dream that can hurt you once you realize you're dreaming, there is nothing in waking life that can really hurt us from a spiritual point of view once we are awake to the moment fully present to the moment. But see, that's not an easy thing to do. How are you going to wake up inside waking life? We have all of this programming from the past, all of the hurts, all the traumas, betrayals, all of the neglect, everything that is created 
The patterns that we live here today, we're not even aware that that was programmed into us. We're just living it out as if it's real. Stimulus, response, stimulus, response, with no thought in between. We get the trigger, the car cuts itself on the freeway, and we're already ready with the hand gesture. We're ready to go. You know, We don't think in between. This does not deserve that. There is, we don't even realize that we have a choice in the matter. We are literally victims to our programming. We are literally slaves to the way each moment plays out because we don't realize we have a choice in real time that we can make to do something different. What is the first thing Jesus always says when he talks about moving into this new life? The first step is repent. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance is merely a change of direction. It's choosing something contrary to the thing that we always do. But we're not going to be able to make that choice until we are aware that there is a choice, which means we have to be present. We have to be awake in our moments. We have to wake up. This occurs in so many different traditions, not just Christianity. You know, most people think Buddha is the name of the guy, but Buddha is not the name of the guy. Siddhartha Gantama was the name of the guy. Buddha is a title that means awakened one. He is the one who woke up. See, for us, Jesus is the fully awakened one. He is the one who completely woke up. He knew who he was. He knew who he was, what he was about. He fully, fully got the landscape. And the question is, when did that happen? Traditionally in Christianity, it was right at birth. He knew fully who he was at birth and through childhood. But Luke 2 suggests that he had to grow and he had to learn. Luke 2 tells us he grew in wisdom and stature. So if he had to learn, then there was a time when he was less aware and a time he was more aware. Some people believe that during his 40 days in the wilderness, that was a time that he completely awoke. At any rate, he didn't start his public ministry until after that time in the wilderness. After the time that he faced down those three temptations, those three tests of the basic compulsions of human life. And then he came back. To what? To tell us about a good news. What was the good news? Take a look at John 10.30 right here on your bulletins up on the screen. Very simple. One of the shorter verses in the Bible. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. See, that's the essential truth. That's the good news. Jesus and the Father are one. And then he prays that we can be one as he is one, that we can all be one with each other. When we are one, we are accepted. When we are one, we are connected. When we are one, we realize there is nothing that we need to do in order to be loved, in order to be accepted. That good news is what sets us free. It sets us free because it sets us free from the fear of not being one. The fear of not being connected. The fear of not having done what we need to do in order to be good enough to be one. This is what he's talking about here. I and the Father are one. Jesus realized who he was. This is his statement of identity. The completely awakened understanding. And it leads to a purpose. Look at Luke 4 starting at verse 16. This is right after he's coming out of the wilderness and he goes to his hometown where he grew up. Hadn't been there in quite some time because 40 days is a symbolic number. He was probably out 
for quite some time. There's 18 unaccounted years in Jesus' life. But he comes back to his hometown. He comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. This is Jesus' mission statement. This is his statement of purpose. This is why he's here. As someone who woke up, who understands who he is, understands the goodness of that news, now his job is to set us free, to show us how we can become one with him and one with the Father. And you look at these images. They come right out of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. You look at these images. They're all images of liberation, of set freeness, images of awakening, giving sight to the blind, hope to the poor, all of these ideas of waking up to what's really there. And this awakening theme is ongoing and occurs throughout the New Testament, actually throughout the entire Bible. Sometimes you won't see the word awake or awakening or the word sleep, but you can see how it's the same thing. But take a look at Ephesians 5, verse 13. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's Paul talking. Now, scholars are disagreeing all over the place on what it means. For this reason, it says. What's that it? Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible. They assume it's either a lost book, you know, a saint's book, or possibly even just a hymn or a song that was sung in the early church communities over and over again, a doxology, if you will, that everybody knew and everybody understood. Kind of like quoting from Amazing Grace, you know, we all understand that immediately it takes us to that place. He's quoting something like that that everybody understands, but he's trying to give it heft. He's trying to give it context to get them to understand how important this is. Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Take a look at First Thessalonians. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. sober. Staying alert, staying awake is echoed often throughout the Bible and especially the New Testament. Remember the story of the ten virgins, the foolish ones and the wise ones. The foolish ones were not ready. They were not alert. They were not really awake. They didn't have oil in their lamps. They weren't ready when things happened. The moment of their visitation came and went, and they were not ready for it because they weren't awake in the moment. Every moment is a visitation if you want to look at it that way. How many of those are we missing? Jesus talks about landowners, homeowners, that need to stay awake and alert because they don't know when the thief is coming that could steal. Stay awake. Stay alert. The Jewish wedding feast is a huge motif that occurs over and over again because there's that same idea of the bride being alert, the bridesmaids being alert when the groom is going to come because he always comes playfully in the middle of the night, 
blowing the shofar at the edge of town to alert everyone he's coming, but with no warning. So you'd be alert, you'd be prepared, stay awake. Moving to Romans 13. Do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. I didn't read that very well. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What you have done is not yet perfect in the sight of God. More ideas of saying awake, but here's a little bit here that I just thought was such a great, what would you call it, clue, insight? He says, do this knowing that the time, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. What's he referring to there? The first belief, the first entry onto the way was not the same as the awakening that he's looking for right now. Two different things. Jesus with Nicodemus talks about being born again, that you can't enter the kingdom until you're born again. There's a time that we decide to believe, that we get a mental agreement, that we move forward, essential. But that's not necessarily the same as the awakening. Jesus' first followers followed him for years. Three years? Four years? We don't know. But even at the crucifixion, they still weren't awake. They still hadn't got there yet. They misunderstood. They misunderstood what kingdom was. They misunderstood who Jesus was. It wasn't until Pentecost that they finally awakened to the oneness with their Father that gave them the fearless power that then set the Eastern Mediterranean on fire. That was the awakening. It takes time. It takes effort. There is something that we need to put in. It doesn't come just vicariously on us. There's something that needs to happen. And Paul is referring to it there. Take a look at Matthew 26. When he went back to the disciples, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the day before the crucifixion. This is the agony in the garden. Jesus praying all night long, sweating blood. And he brings his three closest friends to him, right? With him. And he sets them down at a tree and he moves a little farther off to pray. And when he comes back to them, he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, so you men couldn't stay awake with me for one hour, could you? All of you must stay awake and pray that you won't come into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You can almost hear the distress in Jesus' tone here through this stark copy from 2,000 years ago, but you can feel it. You can feel his disappointment that they're not with him. You can feel his distress, not only for himself and the situation he's going through, but for them, that they're not awake. He knows what they're going to be going through and the distress they're going to go through because they don't realize the good news yet. They don't realize the oneness yet. Wake up, Jesus is saying. And Jesus calls this awakened state kingdom. That's his name for it. And they misunderstood because they were looking for a temporal warrior king to come and create a sovereign nation. And we misunderstand because kingdom means to us the heaven of the next life, the afterlife. But Jesus is trying to get us to understand it's neither. 
It's this awakened state right here, right now. When we wake up to the oneness with our Father, wake up to the oneness with God's presence that we can have right here and right now. All his teaching points to kingdom. All his teaching is wakening to new life. That's absolutely essential. Like at John 3.3, talking to Nicodemus now. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the question should be, how do we do this? How do we wake up? What is Jesus asking us to do and how is it accomplished? That's really where this is all going. So, last week we were talking about, two weeks ago we were talking about what the effect is trying to do here. How we interact with people. We talked about helping people find acceptance. We talked about them helping getting involved, participating. We talked about them building trust and we finally talked about them practicing the presence or living the effect of God's love. And then last week we took that that participation portion and broke that down and said, okay, what are we actually doing when we're trying to participate, when we're getting involved? We're finding community, of course, but it's not just community. It's opening enough to community that we find accountability within the community. Community on steroids, I think is what I said, Right? There's got to be a structure. There's got to be something that's happening and it's happening on a regular basis. And then we find the discipline within ourselves to show up on a regular basis, day after day, something that we do day after day, every day, that creates this new habit, that creates this memory bank of experience of God's trustworthiness that allows us to begin more and more to find that trust that's the essential piece until we trust We're fear-based. Once we trust, we move into a love base and everything begins to change. And then finally, service was the last piece. To close the circuit, to come back to the beginning again, to give back. All of those pieces are what participation is about. But is that automatically going to create the awakening that we're talking about? And the answer is no. If you approach anything any religion, any practice, anything that you purpose to do as mere obedience, following rules, something that you need to do because someone told you that you need to do it, something that you need to do because you're afraid that if you don't, you won't get the reward you're seeking or you'll get punished otherwise. We can do all of that stuff. We can keep showing up. We can be the most disciplined person on the planet and no closer to the awakening than when we first began. Jesus said at Matthew 5.20, unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom. He's talking about this very phenomenon. As long as you're obeying law, as long as you're doing something out of a fear base, you're getting no experience of what this truth really is. There is a kind of abandonment that has to take place. There's a kind of letting go that has to take place. There is an acceptance of our vulnerability that has to take place. Because as long as we're obeying, we can stay defended. As long as we're just following rules, we can keep everything at arm's length. We can keep ourselves safe in our fear and never really get touched. But the moment that we allow our vulnerability to move in, the moment that we allow ourselves to accept our own imperfection and still see the connection that's possible because God is love. Everything starts to change from that point. 
How does Jesus say it at Matthew 5, 3? He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, always pointing to kingdom, pointing to this awakened state. So, happy are, enriched are, whole are, that word blessed. Congratulations too. Fortunate are you when you are poor in spirit. And we misunderstand that idiomatic phrase as well. It sounds like a negative to us. But poor in spirit literally means someone who has the attitude of poverty even if they're rich. In other words, they're humble. They're vulnerable. They're living life right at ground level. They're seeing everyone as connected, equal to themselves, and themselves equal to them. This is not self-deprecating to be important spirit. It's the complete awareness of who we really are. Completely vulnerable, completely dependent, and yet completely loved, completely accepted, and completely connected at the same time. Those are the people who understand kingdom because they are kingdom. They don't possess it. They haven't even entered it, even though we use those words. They are kingdom. They are experiencing kingdom. They are waking up. To show up to the community, to show up to your program, whatever you have created your program to be, is not going to wake you up unless you're doing it with this kind of open-ended vulnerability to completely allow yourself to be seen, to be completely transparent, to be completely present. Otherwise, we're still asleep. Otherwise, we're still fear-based. We're always talking about accepting Jesus. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. Accepting Jesus into our heart. But accepting Jesus is not theological. Accepting Jesus has nothing to do with our heads. It can start with our heads, but it has to move into immersion. It has to move into this absolutely vulnerable presence and connection so that we can wake up to the truth. Jesus has to use really radical images to try to get this across to us. He tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That cleared the room out for him that particular day. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. What's he talking about? He's about having all of us completely imprint ourselves with who Jesus is. To take into ourselves, to assimilate into our very selves everything that animates Jesus, everything that he is. No walls, no shields, everything completely connected, nothing separating us. We've actually taken him into our very cell work. That's what he's talking about. How radical is that? They misunderstood, of course, but what he's talking about is something that is so fundamental, so radical, that most of us shy away from it. Most of us cannot be that vulnerable, that open. Now, Rome wasn't built in a day. Progress, not perfection. Okay, you know, but are we willing to start taking the steps toward that kind of connection, toward that kind of vulnerability? He says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He's talking about the descent that is going to have to happen before we can ascend again. He's talking about the loss of everything that we think we know about ourselves, the loss of all these defenses that we've built up over 20, 30, 40 years that have kept us surviving, that have kept us, you know, trying to get through another 24 hours. But the loss of that feels like a death, and it's terrifying. Just as terrifying as picking up your cross and following him up the hill. Jesus says if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. And until you lose it, you can't find it. 
Another image to the same type of vulnerability, the same opening up. You know, I was just talking about Marion got a little pin from Dr. Erico that is the Aramaic word for love and it's written in the Estrangulus script that Aramaic principally is written in. And the word is haba. And the word hub, the root of, of that word for love, literally means to kindle a fire. Or it can mean a germinating seed that looks all dry and dead on the outside, but you water it and you nurture it, and suddenly a plant breaks through. You've got all this dry kindling, you put a spark to it, and you nurture it, and you blow on it, and you make sure nothing hurts it until it can grow into a roaring fire. There's this idea of love being kindled out of something that looks dead and moving off into this huge bonfire, this huge tree. And so we can move along these same lines. We start small, but we have to move in ways that we're not really comfortable with. These images of full participation, awakening us to the vulnerability and the imperfection, waking us to this good news that we're already worthy of connection. So I've thrown a lot of words at this, but I guess it gets down to how do we do it still? You know, how, If we want to wake up inside a dream, if we want to have a lucid dream, the practice is to constantly question your consciousness, constantly question whether you're dreaming or not, so that you will continue to do that in the, in the dream state. If you want to wake up in life, if you want to wake up in your moments right here and right now, you need to practice the constant presence of God. You have to practice awareness, practice mindfulness, practice actually being here. Because if we don't do that, if we're not aware, we can't separate what is really here in the moment from what we brought in through our heads, through all that programming from the past. When it comes right down to it, you can't repent until you're aware of a choice in the moment. You can't choose another direction. And anything that we want to do in terms of actual change in our lives, we only have two tools. We have awareness and we have repentance. We call that awareness and opposite action. Awareness and contrary action. That's it. That's what we've got to work with. And there is no contrary action until there's awareness of choice in the moment. Practicing awareness is the ticket in the door. Practicing mindfulness and presence is the ground of all being. I'm getting to the point where I believe 90% of the spiritual journey is mindfulness, it's presence, it's alertness to the Spirit of God in this moment, moving through our lives. My hero is now Brother Lawrence. Some of you who aren't familiar with Brother Lawrence, he's a 17th century French monk. Uneducated, was made the cook when he entered his, uh, his home, and he resented that. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to be where the monks were as he imagined his life as a monk would be. But over the years, he realized God was just as present in the kitchen as he was anywhere else. And finally, he was more present to him in the kitchen where he was useful, where he was feeding his brethren, feeding his home. And then he quit all forms of devotion, all forms of other services and rituals, except those that he was obligated to by the rule of his house. He quit seeing his spiritual director because he didn't need him anymore. Every moment was equal to every other moment in this sensation of God's presence. You know how far he went with that? How radical he went with that? He said, even if I find myself in hell, it will be transformed into a paradise by the presence of my God. 
I don't even know if that's theological, but hey, you get the drift. No matter where he goes, no matter how bad it is, he knew the presence of his God would transform that moment into a paradise if he was present to it. He said, I banish all thoughts except the one that's essential to the duty at hand. Imagine your day if all you did was think about exactly what you were doing at every given moment. This conversation, that task, and everything else went to the side. How would you experience your day? How much do you really spend of your day thinking about the thing you're actually doing? And how much of your time is letting your mind wander to other thoughts? And how many of those thoughts are actually positive and how many are negative? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we're spending more than half of our time, and many of you, it's more than 90% of your time not thinking about what you're actually doing. And 90% of those thoughts are negative and driving you into the ground. And we wonder why we're not feeling connected to God. We wonder why nothing is changing in our lives. We wonder why that no matter what we do and say we believe and how many times we show up to church and Bible studies, everything seems to be the same. Because we haven't woken up. We haven't practiced the presence that would allow us to see that we can choose this moment right here, right now, to be in the kingdom state. And make no mistake, each moment is a choice to be in kingdom or not. There's one, not a master switch that you flip and you're just in kingdom for the next 20 years. Choose this moment. You know? What did he say? I can't even think of his name right now. He said, choose this day who you will serve. Who am I thinking of, Pat? Joshua. Joshua, choose this day. As for me and my house, I choose the Lord. I serve the Lord. This day, right now, what's your choice? But you've got to be aware enough to make the choice. Practicing presence constantly. Am I here? Where am I? You know, are you really here now? Jesus says at John 10.10, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, I came that they, we, are they, I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance. And the Amplified Version says, to the full, till it overflows. Jesus came that we might have life to enjoy it until it's overflowing. Does that describe your life? If not, can it? Yes, that's the good news. Yes, it can. And it's your choice every single moment. God already made his choice. He made his choice from the beginning of time. He made his choice and ratified it again at the cross. It's always been made. Everything we need is already here. Everything you need is already inside. The kingdom is within. The kingdom is in the midst. All we have to do is choose it. But we need to spend some time practicing awareness and presence and mindfulness. Just go through your day and be aware. Start there. Use your senses to bring you back to ground. Feel the air. Feel the sun. Taste your food. Slow down. Really look into the eyes of the person you're having a conversation with. Hear what they have to say. Care what they have to say. Read their body language. Look at their facial expressions. When you respond, respond relevantly. If you just went around all day long with the foremost thought in your mind that you're going to leave everyone that you encounter better than you found them, how would that change your experience? 
Because in order to do that, you have to really see them. You have to see what they need. And even if it's just eye contact, recognizing their existence, a smile in the grocery aisle, you know, a stray comment about the weather or some other trivial thing or a compliment, how can that change everything about that moment and move it into a kingdom moment in the most insignificant of ways? We're not talking about the big significant stuff. We're talking about every detail of every moment that you use to come back and realize that the only intersection between us, our lives, and God's presence is right here and right now. God is everywhere. God is every when, but we're not. The only place we will intersect everywhere and every when is here and now. Always here and now. If you're not here, if you're not now, you're nowhere. And you cannot ever experience the healing and the deliverance and the acceptance and the forgiveness and the love that is our Father in heaven. This is what Jesus is trying to bring us. This is life till it overflows. And it's our choice to make right here and right now. Practice presence. Practice the awareness of God's presence in every one of our moments. It starts there with everything that you do. Brother Lawrence said, we think we have to invent all these different ways of coming at God, but it's not so. All we have to do is what we normally do every single day, but do it for the sake of God. Do it for God's love. In other words, do it with the presence of his involvement in that moment, and it becomes a sacred kingdom moment. Let's pray. Father, you know that sometimes the simplest things can be the most difficult for us. We're all fearful creatures. We've all learned to be fearful, and for good reason. And you understand. Help us to step out. Help us to try something different, something radical, something uncharacteristic for ourselves. Help us to risk what we need to risk in order to get just that first glimpse of what kingdom really looks like. Father, we love you. You know we love you. But help us to wake up more and more so that we can experience the overflowing life that you want for us. We can get that taste of kingdom. We know that you are always here. We know that you never leave or forsake us. Help us when it doesn't feel that way to continue to take these steps in the direction that you have shown us. And thank you for loving us through the entire process and never letting us go. And let us never forget that we can only love you, anyone else, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.